and welcome to our 7 Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson, and at 7 Investing, our mission is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing our seven favorite stock market opportunities for just $17 per month. And I am joined tonight by my fellow advisors who are actually in charge of making those seven monthly recommendations. Team, how are you guys doing on this lovely Tuesday evening? Uh, doing great. Amazing. Fantastic. Well, one thing that we're very excited about right now is that we've expanded our team significantly in recent months. And so in the first segment of today's podcast, we'll be describing each of our investing styles. And I'll ask a follow-up question to each of our advisors too, to describe how they have each improved the most as an investor in recent years. Investing we know is a marathon and there's no set finish line. We are always improving. And so we wanna hear a little bit about how people are expanding their capabilities as investors. And then in the second segment of the show, I'll be asking a fun question to each of our advisors that's related to topics that we've discussed on our recent podcast, live streams, and updates. And so I'd like to start with Manisha Sammy. Manisha, you are actually the newest advisor to the Seven Investing team. You just joined this 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 month here in November. Uh, so welcome. And can you tell us a little bit about the types of companies that you like to invest in? Sure. Um, thank you for the warm welcome. Um, so I generally like to focus on genomics. So immunotherapy, gene therapies, gene editing, um, and also technologies that enable the genomic revolution. I like to look at platform technologies that can cut across a number of different therapeutics and diagnostic companies. That's perfect, Manisha. And you know, as an investor, how would you say that what's something that you really improved upon in recent years? I think the biggest thing I improved upon is not getting tied down to a company that I really like, um, especially when you have new companies entering the public markets. It, I think it's very important to be able to say, you know what, this technology is no longer relevant, being able to sell out and then um, buy into a different company where the technology might be better because it's cheaper, faster, or even better. So I think that's the biggest way. Um, an example would be, for example, uh, well, on the therapeutic side, you have Bluebird Bio, Gene Therapy, um, love the CEO. I still love the management there. Um, but then you have CRISPR Therapeutics, and they're also going after a similar indication for sickle cell disease, and it just was no longer relevant. That's perfect. Well, Manisha, we're looking forward to seeing your upcoming stock recommendations. Your first pick will be coming out on December 1st. Again, genomics and kind of keeping an open mind to different technologies. Our second most recent advisor is Max Chatsko. Similar backgrounds in a lot of ways to Manisha. Max, how would you describe your investing style? Well, I think Dan joined after me, but uh, we'll go We'll go in sequence. Ooh, that's right. Third, third most recent. My apologies. That's right. We've been, we've been adding new advisors left and right here. We can't stop. Um, no, yeah, I'm actually, we have stopped. We're at seven. We're stopped. <laughs> That's right. We're not eight investing. <laughs> Dang. No, uh, I'm pretty excited to have Manisha on the team as well. Uh, I think we're going to be a, a pretty good uh, duo here covering this space. Um, something I've improved on a lot as an investor recently. You know, when I started off, I think just being an engineer, maybe you can relate, Simon. You you follow innovation and you kind of geek out and nerd out on it, and it's pretty exciting. But um, I think I was a little too naive earlier in my investing career about how difficult it can be to commercialize some of these innovative technologies. So I learned that the hard way, the, uh, the best technology doesn't always lead to a great business. So that's really influenced uh, my investing approach and my investing style. So what I do now is uh, I take a bottom-up approach. So I kind of layer my research into three different layers. 
So first I dig into a technology or technology platform uh, through the science. I try to understand it from a technical perspective. So I'll, you know, read the scientific literature, talk to independent scientists or engineers in the field. And when we're not in a pandemic, I like to tour labs and facilities as well. Uh, then I follow that up by looking into the differences between specific companies uh, in an in a area, right? So CRISPR is one area, for instance, but there's a lot of different ways that it can work. Some don't work very well. So I, I'm trying to understand each company, each approach, how they differ. Um, so I'll read mass information. So things like uh, digital publications or industry publications. And I also include uh, company reports, so press releases and investor presentations. Uh, and then finally, I'll do the actual company research uh, when I find a company or two that I really like. So I'll read through the SEC filings, make sure it's a good sound business, look at all the financials. Uh, so I kind of layer these on top of one another. And um, it's definitely helped me to avoid some big painful losers uh, since I've done that. So, Well, great, Max. Looking forward to seeing your recommendations as well. Again, kind of following biotechnology, uh, bridging the gap between technology and the journals and actually the recommendations themselves. Dan Klein, let's come to you next. Thank you, first of all, for helping me keeping my chronology in place of when everyone (laughs) joined the team. Uh, You're a recent addition as an advisor to our team as well. Tell us a little bit about the investing that you like to do. Yeah, so my investing style is probably more conservative than, than anyone else here. I tend to invest in companies that I know really well. So Think about the things you use in your everyday life, but I'll also go out and explore a company. So if there's something like I cover retail, which is not something a lot of people cover. If there's a store I hear good things about, I'll go out and visit the store. I'll order something online. I'll put the store through its paces. And I'm a big research guy. I'll, I'll, I'll read earnings call transcripts. The other thing I try to do is be open to ideas that are sort of at the edge of what I cover. So, you know, if you cover retail, well, maybe you look at a, you know, a a real estate REIT. Maybe you look at uh, something in the technology that powers retail. And I'm trying to be a little bit broader in what I consider, but in general, I'm going to pick stocks that are not going to go 10,000 in one day. You know, they're not going to go from a hundred dollars to $10,000, but they're probably the ones that you're going to look at and go, okay, that's a bedrock. That's a piece of my portfolio. That's going to go slowly up over time. And now, you know, that being said, my personal portfolio, uh, you know, includes some things that, that have exploded over time. So, you know, I, I base it in a foundation and sometimes, you know, companies grow and change and you get pleasantly surprised. Perfect, Dan. So a little bit more conservative, but really a thorough understanding of those industries, especially retail, like you said. What's something you think you've improved recently as an investor? So one of the things, and I'll go back the last couple of years, um, I've been very lucky that all of my friends, including the the, the six of you, not all of my friends, but the vast majority of my <laughs> friends are people who do this for a living in some fashion or other. So, you know, the people at, at other places we've worked, So we have these inside baseball conversations and I've tried to be really open to, okay, I don't invest in this area, but this friend of mine really does. Let's learn why they do that. And, you know, none of us are making picks based on, you know, the pure, the charts, or we think this, they're all based on the fundamentals of the company, the management. So, you know, I've been doing something where I buy some shares of Max's pick every month. I'm going to do that for a year. And I'm doing that because I've learned about myself as an investor that I'm a little too cautious, that I miss out on things that I knew were going to do well. So 
committing to spending, you know, a small amount of money on Max's pick each month just sort of brightens and broadens my portfolio. Some of the things I own personally are things you guys have suggested that were on my watch list, but I just couldn't pull the trigger. So as an investor, I'm trying to be a little more open than I am as someone making a stock pick. Because as you know, when we make our pick, it's our highest conviction pick each month. It's going to be awfully hard for me, you know, for something that I heard about from you to be my highest conviction pick until I've studied it for quite a bit of time. That's perfect. Well, so Dan, this- sorry to disappoint. I think I have the uh, lowest risk pick in December. So uh... <laughs> maybe I will buy Manisha's pick yeah. in December. <laughs> Great points, Dan. Uh, you know, expanding the circle of competence, like you said, and, the, and soliciting the opinions of others. Uh, for everyone listening, you know we are very excited, of course, to have Max and Dan and Manisha join our team. Uh, the last time we did kind of an investing review like this, we were four advisors. Now we're seven advisors coming up with seven individual recommendations each month. So it's really exciting to have uh, full strength for our team here. Uh, Matt Cochran, let's go to you next. You know, you're one of the original founders here with Seven Investing. Tell me, uh, remind me, if you would, a little bit about your investing process. Uh, sure thing, Simon. Well, I guess the space I'm most familiar with is like financial services or financial technology, which can be short, uh, shortened to fintech. But really what I'm looking for is, is just like, you know, you remember, I remember like stocks represent ownership in a business and good businesses are eventually, ultimately built upon the ability to generate profits. And if companies want to earn profits for a long time, they have to have a sustainable competitive advantage. And that's what's often referred to as an economic moat. Um, and if you just picture a, a castle from medieval times and a, a moat that surrounded it, it would protect it from like invading armies or uh, you know other, other lands that were trying to take over their land. And so examples of economic moats, that could be anything from, uh, from patents that grant exclusive intellectual property rights uh, to brands that consumers love and repeatedly buy from, or just high switching costs because uh, just a system is in place or a platform is in place that is just very costly and time consuming to switch away to a competitive product. And these are the things that allow companies to charge higher prices and generate greater profits over time. And so these competitive advantages, they tend to shield companies and their stock prices from competitive threats. And that's the primary thing I look for when investing. Well, Matt, I've known you for a long time. I've heard you talk about the depth and the the breadth of these moats, you know, that are filled with crocodiles. And, you know, you know, I've had co- lots of conversations about those, but I'm curious to find out how do you think you've improved the most as an investor recently? And what, what was that due to? I don't know recently. I'll say when I started, I was just looking for like, I was trying to find like the magic formula or the magic number that could like that, that, that was the, the key to success, the secret to success in investing. And like when I started, it was something as simple as like a dividend yield. And I would just look for companies with the highest dividend yield. And then I like evolved from that to like, well, it has to be a good valuation. So I just start looking for companies with the lowest PE ratios as if like no one else was doing this. Um, you know, and so as I've evolved over time and that, that, that kind of metric evolved over time. Like, it, you know, for SaaS companies, when I first was, uh, starting to understand SaaS companies, I thought it was the rule of 40. You know, there's just different metrics over time that I would try to latch onto, believing that this was the secret to success. And I think the thing I've learned is like, you know, investing is a very dynamic uh, game for like a dynamic practice. You know, it's constantly changing and there's no single one metric that'll determine your success or failure. And to just look at a company from a more holistic approach, look at the industry it's in, look at its competitors, and uh, eventually, like, you know, does it have an economic moat? Can it generate profits? 
and can it protect those profits and grow those profits over time? Sounds great, Matt. Sounds like a shift from being more quantitative to being more qualitative. Uh, sure, Austin Lieberman, let's, let's go with you next, Austin. How would you describe your investing style? Yeah. Hey, Simon and Matt, I can't wait to uh, have Al the Alligator make another reappearance in <laughs> some of your marketing videos. And our original subscribers and listeners may have heard of Al. If you haven't, then just get excited because I think Matt will bring old Al back. Um, yeah, I'm Austin Lieberman. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the, you know, the old schoolers here. I'm one of the old, old ones here. And uh, I invest almost exclusively in founder-led companies. So those are companies that are still run by the people who founded the company. And there's always exceptions, but in general, I think founders have big visions. They run the company with a long-term mindset and they have uh, a substantial amount of their net worth tied up in the company. So that's some of the reasons that I like investing in founder-led companies. Personally, I have a background in business and technology consulting, and I was able to see some of the enterprise-wide digital transformation projects that were going on in 2017 and 2018. Uh, and it was was crazy to me, but some of the largest and most successful companies uh, that we know of today are still running on infrastructure that's 10 or maybe even 20 years old. And so with that, uh, I was exposed to enterprise software companies A lot of these companies offer subscription service models for different things that are critical to running uh, large scale businesses. And those models work great because customers can basically pay for what they need. They can add or or change their service when they want to and uh, upgrade or downgrade. And and these companies are known as software as a service or SaaS stocks. So a lot of my recommendations are in enterprise software and SaaS stocks. In terms of traits that I look for, I look for some that are intangible. I don't use any types of screens or anything like that. Um, I like to look for intangible traits because screens can't really find those. And there's a lot of people out there screening. So uh, founder-led is one of them. The culture at a company, diversity on the leadership team, customers who are fanatics about the product. And even um, a lot of companies today have huge, huge communities of customers that that are just raving fans. And then some tangible metrics. Again, I don't use screens, but I do look at some tangible metrics. These are things like revenue growth rate. I generally like things that are growing faster than 40% uh, year over year. Gross margin, generally above 70%. Sales and marketing as a percentage of revenue. I like to see that trending down because as software companies uh, find product market fit, they should be able to spend less on sales and marketing and still uh, have great revenue. I like to see them working towards profitability. Don't care if they're profitable or not right now. I just like to see that trending in the right direction. And then a big thing is dollar-based net expansion rate. What that means is uh, if it's over 100%, that means that customers are spending more in following years than they did the previous. So say it's 130%. That means that on average, customers are spending 30% more in following years than they did say this year. And then generally, I look for companies that are between 1 billion and 50 billion in market cap. And just a few examples um, of companies that, that kind of fit these traits, the Trade Desk, Okta, and Twilio. And so, Perfect, Simon, that's Austin. that's the kind of stuff I look at. And, and those are you know the, the types of companies that you'll see me recommend for 7 Founder-led companies, enterprise software. That sounds great, Austin. What's one thing that you've done that you think that you've improved as an investor recently? Yeah, 
always a work in progress. Uh, but I think what I'm getting better at is not falling in love with the story of a stock or if something drops big because the business is struggling, you know, hoping to buy and, and hope that turns around. That's different than a, a temporary sell-off. Those happen. But if the business starts to struggle, um, I tend to, to stay away. So I try to invest in companies that are, are winning, companies that, that are trending in the right direction, have great fundamentals because as we've seen with the Amazons and Netflixes of the world, if you find the right companies, those trends can tend to continue compounding and, and getting better over time. Great points, Austin. Uh, not following the story of stocks. And then Steve Simonton, let's come to you too. How would you describe yourself as an investor? Oh, I, uh, <laughs> well, I, I specialize in technology and artificial intelligence uh, in part because that's where my background is as a software engineer who uh, worked with neural networks and machine learning uh, back in the day, a long time ago. Uh, but I'm open to any business in any industry uh, that I can adequately understand. So uh, rather than a bottom-up model like Max was saying, he follows I generally follow a top-down approach uh, to finding investment candidates. You know, first taking a, a macro view of broader industries. I'm looking for tail events that are truly disruptive to the way that we do things. Uh, then I narrow them down to the companies uh, that are poised to benefit most over the long term. You know, whether by taking market share from competitors or building their own niche organically. Uh, I also enjoy finding companies that are following proven models for consistently creating shareholder value. Now, those of you who are seven investing subscribers will know which of my recommendations so far uh, are, I'm referring to, uh, to that end. But uh, I'm also equally unafraid to find businesses that are beaten down uh, for what I view as unjustifiable reasons or to buy winners that uh, I believe will keep on winning. You know, too many times. When I was younger, I passed on stocks that continuously looked overpriced based on traditional valuation metrics and ended up being incredible values as they kept winning over the long term. Sounds great. Top-down approach, Steve. Uh, how do you think that you've improved as an investor recently? Um, I'd say that uh, one of the ways I've improved most in recent years is, is I've become fairly impervious to volatility. Uh, I've kind of accepted that it's a feature, not a bug uh, when it comes to investing in stocks. And again, you know, so many times you'll see a, a stock soar or plunge. And in both cases, you're tempted to either take profits or cut your losses. Uh, but I think it's more important to uh, re-examine those stocks and determine whether it presents an opportunity or whether it's the start of a much longer term trend. And more often than not with great businesses, especially when they rise, it's the beginning uh, of a longer term trend. Uh, and they end up you know, really delivering returns that are kind of beyond your wildest dreams uh, in those cases. And it's fantastic to watch. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Steve. And then I'll bring us home for the end of this first segment, just describing myself. Uh, I am a self-proclaimed growth style investor, also a self-proclaimed science nerd, which puts me in good company in this team here uh, that goes out and looks for developing trends. You know, spent the decade of my 20s going out in direct sales calls, spent the next decade, the most part of it kind of uh, going to industry conferences and seeing which way the wind was blowing, seeing which trends were developing out there, seeing which way technology was heading. And so I'm a really big fan of companies that spend a lot of money on R&D and yet have expanding operating margins because they have leverage built into the business itself. And so I think that one of the ways that I've improved as an investor recently has really been drawing the lines between those, those developing trends that are taking place out there and an individual company's performance. And 
I believe it's really not until you get in the nitty gritty of looking at a company's unit economics to find the really good investment opportunities. Things like comparing of the lifetime value versus customer acquisition costs. You know, how does that matter and how do you quantify something like that? Assessing operating leverage to see how something that a company builds up front is going to lead to rising margins over times like this. These are things that are really important to investors. And there are things that are taking place out there in the markets that these companies compete in. Uh, but it's still up to the company themselves to take advantage of that. And not all companies are created equal, even if they are in the same market. This is something that influenced my current month's pick, and it's also played a key role in my upcoming December recommendation as well. And so, great. So there's the investing styles of our seven lead advisors. Oh, no, what, what, one more for you, Simon. Oh, you've got, one more, Dan, please. You've got to answer. Well, I, I want to know what you've learned from other people, but I also want to know how you put this team together. We are all very different, but we all do sort of overlap. So kind of a two-part question. That's a perfect question, Dan. And, you know, it goes back to the ethos of Seven Investing being a collection of different styles that represents all parts of the market. As you just heard from our seven descriptions, we're all very different in what we're looking at out there, whether it's retail, whether it's genomics, whether it's tying the, the you know, between technology and businesses, um, whether it's founder-led companies, whether it's competitive moats, or whether it's a top-down approach looking at the trends that are taking place out there, we're all looking at different things. And I wanted to make sure that our team of advisors was representing different corners of the market. And, I, and, and then, you know, the last part here, what have you learned? I mean, you've been doing this as long as anyone here, but I'm guessing there are still a few things left to learn. Quite a few. It's a marathon. There is no finish line for investing. You get to keep improving no matter uh, what the experience level, age, or what you look at in the market is. I think that probably the thing that I've learned the most is just respecting people that are on stage that are a ton smarter than I am talking about their life's work as a PhD, postdoctorate, whatever it is. Um, those are the things that are moving the bar out there. And then it takes really smart business leaders to figure out how can you harness this technology, this innovation, whatever it is, and capture profits out of it. And then how do you make those profits turn into shareholder returns as well? Um, I've gotten a Great respect for that in recent years, to say the least. <laughs> Very appreciated. Well, and now to, to our second segment here. This one's going to be a lot of fun because no one on the team knows what question I'm going to spring on them here. But it's going to be a combination of, of kind of some games we've played in the past on this podcast. Um, combining our bullish or bearish game, where I ask a question and the advisor says if they are bullish, thumbs up. Uh, we expect that trend to continue, or that's going to be a positive, bearish thumbs down. But then I'm also going to throw another twist into this of an over and under, where I'm going to set the bar at a certain level. And you can tell me if the question is going to result in over or under the bar that I set. This is probably influenced by me watching too much football lately, probably combined in with you taking a recent trip to the casino and those betting odds. But just to have some fun with it, we've had a lot of live streams and podcasts and content recently. I want to capture some of those insights um, here on the team. And so, Steve, I'm going to start with you on this one. You're going to be my first victim. I mean, first All advisor right. to go on this. <laughs> uh, according to the SPAC Insider, which SPAC stands for a special purpose acquisition company. There were 182 new SPACs that have been launched already in 2020. That's wow. a number that's triple from the 59 that were launched in 2019. Um, Steve, is this a long-term trend or a fad? And so my question is, in three years, is the number of SPACs launched in 2023 higher or lower than 182? Oh, goodness, higher. 
I, I think it's, it's an intriguing way to bring a company public, you know, these businesses, it's a great way to raise money and then find acquisition candidates. You basically bring them public that way. Uh, but it's a, it's a low cost way and it's an attractive way to not only raise capital, but, um, to, uh, to acquire team up with other investors often and acquire businesses and, and bring them public. So, um, I think it's a, it could be the start of a longer term trend and I, I'll lean higher. So taking the over on, on the over under of 182. Take, taking the over. You got mm-hmm. it. Okay. Matt Cochran, I'm coming to you next. We talked a lot about the S and P 500, the 500 largest market caps in American stock exchange, but let's talk about the S and P three because the three largest companies out there are Apple, Amazon and Microsoft. Apple today has got about a $2 trillion market cap. Amazon and Microsoft are both at around $1.6 trillion. These are huge companies, Matt. But three years from now, which one of those three companies has the largest market cap? Wow. Um, that, that's a hard one. But I, I would go with Microsoft. Um, I just think the the spaces they're moving into with, uh, like Sadia Nadella, the Microsoft CEO, talks all the time about how IT spending by uh, companies and corporations uh, around the world is, is expected to double over the next few years. And I think Microsoft is probably the biggest beneficiary of that, although there will certainly be many beneficiaries of that. Um, but like with their their cloud infrastructure, uh, you know, Office 365, Teams, Windows, uh, you know, none of that stuff is going away. They're, 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 uh, they're developing a bigger space in the video game market. Uh, you know, they have a chance to capture like uh, augmented reality with their HoloLens. So I just think they're in a lot of the right places. So I would take Microsoft. Microsoft, good call on that one, Matt. Austin, let me come to you for the next one here. Matt mentioned cloud. Let's look even higher than the clouds because we have a lot of companies that are shooting for the moon. Um, some of the companies that you followed are actually doing just that. Uh, Elon Musk tweeted just a couple of months ago that he believes SpaceX would probably IPO the Starlink segment of his business, which is the satellite internet division, several years in the future because he wants revenue to be smoother and more predictable for shareholders. But he did say, you can hold me to this. Uh, so two-part question for you on this one, Austin, is, is first of all, uh, does, does SpaceX IPO Starlink three years from now, so by the end of 2023. And two, if they do do that, are you buying shares? Uh, no, Simon, they're not going to IPO because they're going to be a SPAC and they're going to be part of Steve's answer to where he thinks there's more SPACs. Steve, I actually think there's going to be less because this is ridiculous. But anyways, uh, yes, I'm very interested in, in SpaceX and Starlink um, it'll depend on, on the market cap and, you know, all that stuff. But, uh, that is a company I would love to invest in. And do they, do they but spend? They're going to SPAC. I'm calling it. They're going to SPAC. SPAC. It's going to be a SPAC. Okay, combined. Yep. I like it. And Steve, keep an eye on that. Cause that'll count to your tally also. By it will. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Dan Klein coming to you. Another over under question here. The second quarter United States figures reported that e-commerce reported for, uh, accounted for 16% of all retail in the U.S., uh, this is rising very quickly because that number was only 10% of retail the year prior. I know you follow retail. You just mentioned a little while ago here, Dan. Um, over under of e-commerce accounting for 25% of U.S. total retail sales by the end of 2021 next year. Oh, there's zero chance of that. So 
At the close of 2019, it was actually 13.4%. During the height of the pandemic, remember we couldn't get toilet paper, we were all buying anything we could from anywhere, it was about 20%. Now, some of it's gonna get squishy. What's curbside pickup? Is that is that digital? Is that like, so there's gonna be more technology involved in how you shop, but people like going to stores. There's a reason I went to the grocery store tonight. I was gonna cook and I wanted to look at what I was gonna cook. Like, I think that's really important. Uh, and it doesn't mean I don't use grocery delivery. I absolutely do. And I did more during the pandemic. I think people vastly overstate how big the internet is gonna get because some shopping is just fun. Some shopping is, you know what? Do I wanna go try on a coat or do I wanna order the coat, have it show up and not fit and have to mail it back? That's not fun. So it'll be more, the number will climb. If you said 25% by 2025, maybe, and I think it might top out. You know, everyone thought that, uh, that online books, that digital books were gonna kill physical books. And it actually maxed out at about 50-50. It's been pretty steady. Some people just like what they like, and it's not a generational thing. Look, people talk about falling mall traffic. Mall traffic was actually like near its highest levels ever in 2019. People just bought less. So we're not going away from shopping. The internet will tick up, but it's not going to be nearly as big as people think it is. Love it, Dan. And I love your recommendation from this previous month, which was actually a retailer, bricks and mortar retailer. We won't reveal the name of the company, but a one that people probably didn't have on their radar before you recommended it this previous month. I think half the team had never heard of it before. <laughs> Manisha, I'll come to you next. Another over-under question. Uh, you previously wrote a white paper on the foundational IP rights of CRISPR, where academic institutions are licensing out their technology for commercial applications now. And as by my count, there are three pure play, publicly traded CRISPR companies today right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Over-under of there being, of course, this field is happening very quickly, Manisha, but the over-under of there being 10 publicly traded CRISPR companies three years from now. I'd say over. So there are a lot of applications for CRISPR. And it's not just so the three publicly traded companies using CRISPR right now, um, they're working on therapeutics. So you have CRISPR, Editas, and Intellia Medicine. But there's this entire other field, so diagnostics, for example, um, mammoth biosciences, and there's a number of others, uh, Aligo, and all of these use CRISPR technology to some extent. Now, whether they have the exclusive um, IP rights, that's a complete different question. It still goes back to either the Broad or UC Berkeley. Um, but companies using CRISPR, that will definitely tick up. Um, there's also a, number, a whole slew of um, companies uh, in the private world that are still um, trying to find new nucleases. So nucleases being kind of the cutting function um, of CRISPR. Uh, so whether, you know, you're cutting DNA or RNA. Um, so I think it's an easy tool. It's cheap. Um, people in high school are using CRISPR technology to edit DNA. That's how easy it is. Um, if, if you look at uh, something called biohackers, for example, you can actually go onto Amazon and buy biohacking kits and use CRISPR and uh, change the DNA of yeast or actually make uh, glow-in-the-dark beer. Um, so that's something for <laughs> all those who enjoy the nice cold beers. Um, but it's just, there's so many applications and we'll only see that tick up. And, you know, if you look from uh, 2012 when it was first uh, invented or discovered uh, up until 2020, you've seen an exponential growth in applications. So it's only a matter of time uh, until we see more IPOs that use CRISPR technology. 
That's fantastic, Manish. Now, I'm very excited about those new companies that are using CRISPR and very terrified about those high school or biohackers that are using it. <laughs> Worth keeping an eye on both of those groups. And Max Chatsko, I'll come to you on this one, another over and under. You posted earlier this week about the requirements for cold chain storage for the COVID vaccines that are upcoming. Now, some of them need to be kept at 80 degrees below Celsius, which could be challenging for distribution across the country. But we also know that there could be multiple vaccines that are approved. Uh, it's not just one vaccine we're banking on. There could be multiple winners from this. And so my over-under for you, Max, is over-under there being six approved SARS-CoV-2 vaccines that are publicly available in the United States by the end of 2021. Six? Um, I'd say, man, that's a good question. I'd say under six by the end of 2021, but I bet it's over six in the long run because there's some that are in development that are just going to be slower. Like where I live, for instance, uh, in Pittsburgh, UPMC is working on a patch that can be stored at room temperature and you just put the patch on it, uh, administers the uh, um, vaccine through micro needles. So, you know, they don't have uh, billions of dollars to spend on it. So it'll be a little slower to develop, but you know, that could be available in 2022 or used in developing countries so but under under in the u.s under six by the end of next year but we'll still have a lot so dan can get to his casinos <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much smash and we did get some input from our uh, resident uh, covid vaccine expert on the number for the over under that i spotted you up with to make it interesting uh even more so all right simon, simon I've, i i got one for you simon uh, Oh, so, I'm going to ask him one, too. You go first, Matt. <laughs> Uh-oh. I called this upon myself. <laughs> the, the New Orleans Saints are in first place, but Drew Brees is out as a starting quarterback now with an injury. Are you bullish or bearish on them, on the idea of them winning the NFC South now? Uh, yes. The Buccaneers are really falling off the wagon, Matt. So it's going to be, I think, the Saints' division to win. I'm also confident in Jameis Winston. Uh, heck of a quarterback in multiple aspects. Not quite Drew Brees, but I'm confident with him to lead the team. All Wait, right. You, well, Simon, see the Simon already Wait, got hold, one hold answer. On. Hold on, yeah, I was going to say Simon got one answer wrong. He's about to get his second one wrong. <laughs> I've got to cheer for the, the Saints no matter what happens. You guys know that. Dan, go ahead. Just pile uh, no, on. I, I, what, I was just going to pile on with the, you know, they had one bad game, the Buccaneers. They looked really, really good this week. But Simon, how can you not get behind the coachless Houston Texans? Like you live in Houston. You know, I grew up in New Orleans as a kid, Dan. I met the Saints at sports bars because my dad brought me out to meet them. And so I've been a lifelong Saints fan that's been loyal. Plus, it's challenging to cheer for the Texans at times, even though I live in Houston. <laughs> I can understand that. Austin, your question here. All right, let's bring it back. I'll, I will focus us, team. All right, don't worry. Simon, <laughs> you've been on Twitter talking about uh, customer acquisition costs, and you quoted Beth Kindig, uh, one of her tweets, you retweeted her tweet, who we're all a fan of. We love, we love her work, and she's been a guest on the podcast. In a tweet that, that you retweeted, um, she actually shared a chart of companies with uh, lifetime value and customer acquisition costs. There's a lot of great companies on here, but I want to focus on uh, four of them, Okta, Zscaler, Cloudflare, and Elastic. And I'm putting you on the spot here. Which one is going to have the largest market cap out of those companies? We'll say three years from now. Oh goodness! Uh, right now, Okta, yep. uh, Okta, which is twenty-eight billion right now, 
Zscaler, 18 billion. Cloudflare's 20. And then Elastic is only eight. So maybe that's a stretch, but but who's going to have the largest market cap in uh, three years? I'm going with Okta on this one. Even, you know, 28 billion is a nice head start over the rest of them right there. I think they hold on to that for at least the next three years. Like you said, Austin, people are throwing money at the security vendors out there right now. Very little acquisition cost for these companies because CIOs are putting that at the top of the list. I think single sign-on, Okta's bread and butter, it's the building block of anything that's in the cloud right now, continues to hold for the the next three years. So I'll go with Okta out of that question. And yes, Matt, I think the Saints still win the NFC South, even with the Bucks showing some promise. I mean, and the Bucks are coming for them. I, I, I know that's your team, Matt. We got to have this conversation oh, oh, continue. Oh. oh, that's right. Austin, <laughs> no, that is your Dolphins. team. Matt, Matt you're the lifelong Dolphins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My apologies. It's not, it's not the Bucks. Makes a lot of Matt's brave for admitting that he's a, he's a Dolphins fan. Anyways, six and three, six and three. Fair enough. Our next podcast will be all about our allegiances in the NFL. Uh, You know, this has been a fun one as we kind of described our investing processes. Again, we've got seven advisors on the team. We're coming up with seven unique stock recommendations every single month. If you'd like to go take a look at them for uh, for this month, it's seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. And we have our new picks coming out on December 1st, which will also include Manisha's very first recommendation here with Seven Investing. Uh, Thank you, team, for joining me this evening, and we'll look forward to our future team podcasts every single month. Uh, For the rest of my team, I'm Simon Erickson. We are Seven Investing. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. Thanks for tuning in. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as...